Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Luke chapter 6 as we continue on our second week of getting back. Shattering paradigms. Shattering paradigms. Paradigms are things in which we see the way things go, the systems, the, 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 the types of ways in which we model our behavior. Let me ask you, what is success? How do you define it? You know, the people define success in so many different ways. Companies use commercials to entice us to buy their products and to help us define what sex, define what success is. Whiter teeth, fresher breath, smoother skin, shiny and bouncier hair. I've been looking for that product for a while now. Smell better. All these things will make you happier and fulfiller and, and more employable and more attractive. These are the things they want you to buy, entice you so that you can have and enjoy life. And you know what? It works. It's easy to fall prey to how others define success or how they can keep score and evaluate how good life is. They also keep many of us in tow as we consider that our life is not as good as others as we consider what they have and what we don't. The world will define success and happiness by how much money or goods and likes you might acquire or those things that you can consume. However, when Jesus enters the scene, he shatters all the worldly paradigms of what constitutes happiness. Now, last week, Luke recorded Jesus selecting the 12 men who would eventually become his disciples or his apostles for a special mission that will turn the world upside down, as the Bible tells us in Acts. However, it will come at a very, very high cost, extremely high cost. These men served God in their generation by spreading the good news of salvation around the world. They established churches around the world and writing scripture that we may take it and read it and learn. One of the selected men would become the betrayer, the traitor, the one who would betray with a kiss. Through this passage, we consider the importance of prayer, of selecting, training, and preparing leadership even in the church. Now, the rest of chapter 6, as you and I continue in this chapter 6 of Luke, is called the Sermon on the Plain. It is the second sermon that Luke records and is remarkably similar to the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 6, Jesus presents his manifesto, so to speak, of an upside-down kingdom as God's love reverses our value systems. God, Jesus himself, is going to turn everything upside down himself. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God that he is bringing will consist of radical generosity, servant leadership, peacemaking, and forgiveness that is counterculture to the world in which he has entered. Today we're going to read and consider verses 17 through 26, where Jesus teaches us on the contrast between those who can expect blessings and those who can expect misery. 
So with that, we're in Luke chapter 16. Let's go ahead and read verse, the first three or four verses and starting with verse 17. Luke writes, and he came down with them, speaking of Jesus, and he came down with them and he stood on a level place. Remember, Jesus was on a mountain with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and he healed them all. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Luke's record here. Eyewitness accounts in order to give us confidence of the life and ministry of Christ. And I pray that you do so this morning as we consider the first part of this sermon on the plane. Lord, Lord, give us wisdom. Uh, help us to hear your words. Uh, keep us from the distractions and the things that just keep us from listening and hearing. Most importantly, responding to what your spirit may be calling us this morning. May it strike deep into our hearts. And we thank you for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, this could be a different setting from the Sermon on the Mount. You, you'll see the, the words and the phrases are going to be very similar, though this is a very uh, this is much shorter than the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, most scholars believe that it could be from the same event, though from a different perspective. Uh, Jesus most likely had taught these truths and preached this sermon at various places. So whether it's at the same time, in the same place in the Sermon on the Mount, we're not quite sure, though we can see that it's all of God's truth. Luke writes that after selecting uh, Jesus, after Jesus selecting his apostles, that he comes down from the mount onto a plain, hence why it's called the Sermon of the Plain, a platitude or, uh, or down a little bit further. And he begins to teach those that have been following him from some time waiting for him while he's on the mountain. They've been following him, wanting to be healed and hear about his teaching. Luke points out that Jesus is healing and casting out demons among a large gathering of people. And he emphasized several times the size and the quantity of the crowd as we just read that passage. There are three groups that are mentioned in this passage. First, we see his 12 disciples as they come down along the mountain with them. Then we see that there's also a great crowd of his disciples waiting for Jesus. And we talked about this last week. Jesus had more than just 12 disciples. He had a great number of them who followed him around the countryside. And along with this great cloud of disciples, Luke points out that there was also a great multitude of other people from around the area. Luke also uses the word all, A-L-L, to display the positive reaction in Jesus' ministry of teaching and healing in just that passage. He says all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast. Not saying that everyone came from, but they came from around a large group. And all the crowd, he says, sought to touch him. They, they recognized that power emanated from him. There was a supernatural miracle working power coming from Jesus. And like the woman who just wanted to touch Jesus, they were crowding in, just wanting to get a glimpse to be able to touch and make contact with Jesus. And then what we see is that Jesus healed them all. Luke seems to tell us that everyone who came to seek healing, Jesus healed them all. What a magnificent little portion of scripture. These crowds have traveled from all over the countryside to hear Jesus teach and to be healed of their ailments. 
Luke also informs us that among the crowd were those that were troubled and tormented by demons. Jesus' power and authority was so evident that Luke writes that the crowd sought to touch him and that power came out from him. Even as they just touched him, he didn't have to speak. The power to heal comes from the Holy Spirit who has been a recurrent character and person in Luke's gospel. The Holy Spirit's power is evidence that writes that Jesus healed them all. Part of Jesus' ministry was to reach and touch the untouchable. To heal the infirmed and the diseased. To care for those that were considered outcasts and outsiders to the rest of society. But his main purpose was to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. So once he had ministered in love to their immediate physical, mental, and emotional needs, he now proceeds to address their greatest and truly their most pressing need by providing words of encouragement to those who would believe on him. Now read with me as we start in verse 20. And now we're just going to read from scripture. As Jesus begins to teach using four parallel statements that will express a blessing and what we're going to see here, a reversal of fortune from the world's point of view for disciples, for his disciples and those that have chosen to follow him. Join with me in verse 20. And Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So now the crowd is probably still there. But he's focusing not only on the 12, but those that are his disciples, those that were following him, that were wanting to hear from him. And he said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. He begins to state that they are blessed. Now, blessed means more than just simply happy. It does mean happy, but it's more than just simple happiness or happy feelings that come from having uh, good circumstances and life is good and favorable towards you. But it's feelings that are associated with having God's favor on you, for God to look on you with favor. It means to be fortunate, to be in a position of favor in spite of our status and situation. And with that definition in mind, he teaches us that the poor is actually fortunate. Now, you and I would never say this to someone who is uh, insecure in their food. We talk about food security nowadays and the social word is food security. Do they have enough food, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Do they have the snacks? Is it nutritional available to them? But he's saying even to those that are hungry, you are fortunate. God's favor is still on you. And you're the objects of God's favor. That, that is totally radical to the world's view. For we would look on them and say they are the less fortunate. They're the ones that God is uh, not looking at. He's not taking care of them. Now, though he could have the materially poor in mind, and it's more likely that he does as well, he's also describing those that are humble. Those that are culturally considered oppressed, despised, and miserable. He doesn't use the same phrase that Matthew does, poor in spirit. So he's probably using that in context, but also talking to those that maybe didn't have two nickels to rub together. The poor in spirit or the poor are not lacking in spirit, but they have the positive moral quality of humility, realizing that they have nothing to offer God but need his free gifts. 
It is shorthand when it says blessed are the poor. It is shorthand for those who are utterly dependent upon God. And it's upon those who see their humbleness and see that they are dependent upon God that are special recipients of God's favor and God's love and of the good news of salvation. And this promise that he gives them, blessed are those who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What he's giving that promise, that blessed, the fortunate, is saying that you have an assurance that you have a kingdom. You have an inheritance. That whether or not they were destitute of material goods or considered themselves or considered by outsiders and outcasts by society, that they do have a home with God. They have an inheritance that is eternal. The Apostle Peter in his first letter exclaims here in 1 Peter, you see it here on the monitor, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. Look at that. That is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven. For you, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's an assurance, there is a promise that you have a place, that you have an inheritance. You may be wailing the fact that you don't have a 401k or an I or, or an you know a Roth. You may not have much in, in, in saved up for retirement. But let me assure you that you have an inheritance. The world wants us to bemoan our financial status. status. They want us to envy those who have more. They want us to covet what they have. The spirit of this age seeks to set us up against one another and be jealous of one another and how God has blessed others. It it wants to divide us with the attitude of those who are the haves between those that are the have-nots. They want us to be at odds with each other. Yet our attitude, those of us who belong to the kingdom of God, is to be different than that of the world and the spirit of the age. We are not to embrace those attitudes. James tells us in his letter, he says, what causes quarrels? What causes fight among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do you not see because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And what does he say? You are adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is intimacy with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. God's saying is blessed are the poor for you have something much greater than what the world has to offer. So how do you see yourself today? Do you find yourself wishing that you had the life of the rich and famous? Do you wish that you had the followers of those people on TikTok or on Instagram? That type of life where you could travel around the world and take beautiful pictures. The Bible says don't desire those things. For many of us, especially here in America, we have more than than the majority of the world has. Even the poor in the United States have dishwashers and phones and TVs and multiple cars. And we call that poverty. Remember, the spirit of this age wants you to be unhappy with your lot in life. But to be unhappy with your lot in life is to shake your fist at a holy God and say that you're not fair, you're not good, you're not wise. 
for those who are God's children, he says, blessed are the poor. Be dependent on me, for you will inherit something that will not rust and that will not decay. Jesus then declares in verse 21, he says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Unlike Matthew's account of hunger for righteousness is not included. The word in Greek here when it says hungry includes the concept uh, to hunger, to be hungry, to be exposed to hunger, to be famished metaphorically, to hunger after, or to desire earnestly, or to long for. And I think that's probably more so what he's getting here. Though it could include those with empty bellies as well. The ESV study Bible notes that this is a promise when he says here, you shall be satisfied. It's a promise of satisfaction. It's just you may be desiring, longing for something today. But blessed are those who look for God for sustenance. It says here in the ESV study Bible, in a way similar to you who are hungry, it refers to those among Jesus' disciples who are physically hungry, but also hungry for God's help and presence. Now, when he says, now you shall be satisfied, implies that the hunger will not last forever, but will be satisfied. God will supply your needs. First, with his abundant presence in this life, God shall supply all our needs, the Bible tells us, according to his riches and mercy, but also with meeting our physical needs. Perhaps quickly in this age, but certainly in the abundance of the age to come. So blessed are those who are hungry, for you shall be satisfied. The problem you and I have is we hunger for that which we should not have, going back to James. We long for the things of the world. We hunger for the things that satisfy us in the physical, the emotional, the mental. Today, as the world describes it and defines it. But we should see that God is the one who supplies all that we need. The next blessing as we continue there in verse 21 is, blessed are you who weep. He says, for you shall laugh. This is addressed to those who are experiencing personal grief or maybe you're carrying a heavy burden and suffering from various types of oppression. I see this just with some of you today, whether it's from the world, from your workplace, maybe even from your family and friends or those you once called friends and family. The promise is for help and for comfort and encouragement to lift up that burden and to bring laughter into our hearts. This echoes the Psalms or the song of Psalms 30 you'll see here on the screen on the monitor where the psalmist writes, Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me, O Lord. Be my helper. That should be your cry in those times. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. And you have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with goodness, gladness. To, to loosen my sackcloth, that's what they would wear when someone would die. They would take off their good clothes and put on old cloths and then pour themselves with the ashes of a burnt fire to show their mourning. He's saying, you have loosened it. You have clothed me now with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O oh Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Let me tell you, I can understand that it can be difficult as you walk through the valleys of life. They're dark. The shadow is deep. The light seems to be far from you. 
Our burdens are so heavy. The weight of disappointment, the weight of fear and anxiety crushes our spirits. Yet we must, we must adopt the heart of Paul who writes in 2 Corinthians, but we have this treasure in jars of clay, speaking about life. Our lives are like jars of clay that can easily crack and be broken and discarded. But he says we have this in order to show the surpassing power of belonging to God and not to us. He goes on to say we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying on the body, the death, or carrying in the body, the death of Jesus. Recognizing that we're to die to the things of this world. So that the life of Jesus may be made manifest or be known in our bodies. In other words, we live for Christ in our ways in which we think. The way in which we make decisions. The way in which we love and care. He says, for we live, for we who live are always being given over to death for Christ. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in the mortal flesh. He says, blessed are those of you who weep. For there will be a day in which your burdens will be lifted and you will laugh and you will find joy and you'll find the reason for your suffering. Now that Paul also tells us that the comfort that God gives us in our suffering is the comfort that we're to give others. Now Jesus then touches a hot topic when we go down to verse 22. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the son of man. Here Jesus is speaking to those that will face persecution on account of their trust and service for Christ. And he's going to point out several ways that this will happen in this verse. One is those that hate you. This is to those who, who will hate and regard you with ill will. Those who will detest and abhor you. It's to regard with less affection and love less and esteem less. We are seeing this in the world today. It's to those that it will exclude you to take you out or to remove you, to, to drive out, to expel, to bring you out or to send you out, to cast out, to eject by force, to expel, to force away, to reject with contempt, despise and contempt in their hearts. And then also he says to revile and spurn. To think of you as evil, even as you do good and obey God's word. It's to heap insults on. It's to denounce, to find fault. It's to rebuke, it's to censor. It's to insult with insulting language and to denounce. He says, do not be surprised when this happens to you, but he says, blessed are you when this happens to you. Now, this again is countercultural. It sounds like a lot like today, does it not? Some of you are experiencing this from some of your families, your friends, and maybe from your neighbors today. Now, it may not be for the name of Jesus Christ today. It may be because you took a political position. Maybe it's a cultural, biblical belief. You have been spurned by family members. You have been shouted down, told to stand down, to shut up, to educate yourself. 
We live in a world where cancel culture exists and where new words like ghosting and doxing have been created in order to describe these awful practices. One newspaper this week noted that after the election, hardcore leftists advocated for draconian punishments for Trump supporters by ways of blacklisting them and defranchising and finding ways to, to help them overcome their Trump support. Now that's just one political way. This is sad commentary on the state of our national discourse, but it's par for the course for the last 2,000 years as Christians have been maligned, threatened, dispelled from their homes, and killed for the beliefs that Jesus was crucified, that he was resurrected and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. What does he tell us to do? He says, blessed are those that receive this type of action. It's very difficult. Jesus is giving words of encouragement to the children of God as they live and serve God in a world that is hostile to their, to their God and their faith. In response to this abuse by the world, Jesus gives them some radical advice that is counterculture to those, to the way in which we're hardwired to respond. When that happens, it's just hardwired. You know, our, 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 our resentment, our bitterness, our, our desire to, to, uh, um, to uh, sorry, uh, to defend ourselves comes rising up. But look at verse 23. Jesus commands them to rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Now, I don't know about you, but that's very difficult to accept. When someone unfollows you, blocks you, for those who no longer want to speak kindly to you, never take your phone call, speak behind your back. The Bible tells us to rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Why? For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Thank you. The promise for those who endure persecution is love, inclusion, affirmation, and acceptance. Not by the world, but by God. Theologian Leafield writes that Jesus' disciples will experience personal vindication and appropriate recognition and blessing from the Lord. And let me share with you, one day you will also, if you're one of those that have been blessed by God. Now their response is to leap for joy and to take solace in the fact that they are not alone. This abuse at the hands of God-haters have been going on for generations, for a millennia, for millennia's, where we join in the suffering of the prophets when we endure the world's rejection and rebellion against God, for they did as well. Instead of acting as the world does, you and I are called to rejoice in all things. This phrase, leap for joy, carries the word picture of a child dancing in the rain, a deer prancing in the metal, or the excitement of a young man receiving news that the woman that he loves says yes to his pronouncement of love and marriage. Now, this is exceedingly difficult to swallow. Today, it seems that each day brings another announcement of a government crackdown on religious beliefs. Media pundits continually criticize our heartfelt beliefs that life begins at conception, 
that there are only two gender, genders, that he made them male and female, that marriage is between only one, one, one man and one woman at one time, and that salvation is only found in Jesus. Hollywood pumps its depravity into our homes through movies and TV shows and other venues, and we allow it in. They ban our books and ridicule our way of life, yet... God has warned us that this would happen in every fact, in every generation. We'll face these types of opposition in varying degrees. We always say we look forward to a simpler time. But if we're honest, there never was a simpler time. But the kingdom of God has dramatically called us to a different set of standards. And it has called us to respond in a way that is direct opposite, in opposition to that of the world. The kingdom of God has new practices, new perceptions, new ways of looking things, and new attitudes, new ways of thinking. One other note to mention is that these conditions of hunger, being filled and being poor, being satisfied, and weeping and laughing and and being persecuted and being vindicated, These are not conditions for you and I to attain so that we can enter into the blessings. But it's for those who have already entered. We are not called to adopt these attitudes through our own self-merits or attempt to earn the kingdom of God through our own self-righteousness. These are qualities that are given through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit as he replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. This wonderful, amazing gift is realized when we see the beauty of Christ by repenting of our sins and putting our trust in the works of Christ. It is in this that we are justified, meaning declared right with God. And it's these new attitudes that reflect a deep piety that rejects religious hypocrisy and embraces the truth of Scripture. So I want to come to you this morning and ask you, do these attitudes Reflect your perceptions, your attitudes, and your way of life. For those are the kingdom belong to the kingdom of God. I would call you today, if you have not, then come to him this morning so that you may have God's favor. In contrast with the children of God who become citizens of the kingdom of God, Jesus now sets his attention to those that have rejected his message and his ministry. As we go to verse 24 to 26, Jesus is going to declare four woes to those that choose earthly gain over spiritual gain. Now the word woe occurs 46 times in the Bible. It means dreadful and calamity. It conjures up the thoughts of affliction, diverse or adverse adversity and anguish and gloom, disaster and misfortune. You do not want someone to say woe to you. Jesus now proclaims woe on those who are enjoying, listen to this, Jesus is now declaring woe to those that are enjoying their best life now. If this is your life, he says woe. Look at with me at verse 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, your prize, your comfort. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 
Woe to you when all people speak well of you for their soul their fathers did to the false prophets. You see that? Now, now, now. You shall, you shall, you shall. These are promises of what they'll receive. In his commentary on Luke, Walter Leafield writes that this woe carries three implications of the men that he's speaking to, these people. One, they've chosen present gratifications over future blessings. They want instant gratification. They want it now. They want the things of the world now. They don't want to wait for the things of God. It's those that disregard spiritual realities. In other words, they they neglect or refuse the things of God, the supernatural, the miracles of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the expectations of Jesus. They prefer those things that they can touch and feel now. And number three, generally assume that the wealthy become so at the expense of others. So it's not just talking about those that are wealthy because God has blessed them, but it's those who have taken advantage of others, those who jealous and covetous, those who climb the ladder on the backs of others. James, the half-brother of Jesus, condemned those with such attitudes when he writes in James chapter 2, you see it here on the monitor, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you? And the ones who drag you into court are not they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let us not be those people. Let us seek our wealth honestly, blessing God for those. It's not a condemnation on all who may have wealth. I pray that God will send us more with wealth, right? I may not be rich, I understand that, but I do enjoy having rich friends. Those are always nice to have. I jest. They are full and jolly now, but they will not be at the day of judgment as they have repeated the practices and attitudes of their fathers in accepting the false prophets. He says, their fathers did the same thing and they're going to reap what their fathers sowed. You might recall that Israel accepted false prophets who would encourage the people to reject the true prophets of God. And like many of us today, the people of Israel had itchy ears desiring only to hear good and pleasant words rather than the warnings and commands of God. Woe to those who choose the things of the world now rather than the blessings of God in his kingdom. Take your Bible and turn, if you would please, to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at this passage a little bit fuller later on, but I just want to look at it. It's a passage many of us know. And it's in this chapter, in verse, Jesus will illustrate the warnings of the woe when he tells the story of a a poor man named Lazarus who begged at the gates of a rich man. Luke chapter 16, we'll start with me at verse 19. Jesus tells the story that there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. This is a man who had it all. He was enjoying life. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. He would set and he would just desire food hoping that he would get 
whatever the rich man would not eat. Moreover, moreover, I should say, even the dogs came and licked his sore. His only comfort was the dogs would come and lick his sore and give him some type of relief. Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. That speaks of paradise. The rich man also died that night and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus, the poor man at Abraham's side. Speaking of Abraham, the patriarch. Verse 24, he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am anguished in this flame. He's not asking for a drink of water. He's not asking for a bottle. He's not asking for a fire hose. He says, just let him dip his finger into, the, into just some water and let him dip it on my tongue and that would satisfy me. It would quench my thirst or help me in this place of torment. Verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, he received the bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides all this, besides you and I, there's a great chasm that's been fixed. And those who would pass from here may not be able to, and those who cross from here to us. In other words, there is no crossing. He says in 27, that I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and prophets, let him hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And God the Father says, no, if you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone would rise from the dead. There's so much there, and we're not going to deal all of it today. But I want to point out in verse 25, for you may want to underline that or highlight that, for that's the main part. When he asks for it to be just satisfied for a little bit, just let him dip his tongue or is dip his finger and dip it into my, my tongue, the water. He says, child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus received bad things. But what you see is a reversal of fortune. For he says, but now Lazarus, the poor man, the one who is hungry, the one who, who weep, the one who is the outcast, he is now comforted here for eternity. But you are in anguish for eternity. You see, your decisions today last more than just your lifetime. They last for eternity The rich man may complain about his plight, but it falls on deaf ears. As he has already chosen his path, he chose to enjoy the pleasures of this world rather than the things of God. Let me ask you, what's your choice today? Mom, dad, young person, what's your choice today? Have you counted the cost of following Jesus? Have you abandoned everything to gain him? Or are you committed to enjoying all that life has to offer today? Is the cost of following Jesus too high for you? Are his promises not sweet enough for you? Providentially, we are drawn back to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. And I say providentially because it's a passage that we have looked at the last three weeks, starting with Moses in last week and even this week. 
where it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt where he was looking for the reward. So let me ask you today, what are you looking for? Are you looking to be satisfied with the food and the comforts and the adulation of man in the world today? Or are you looking for God to show his favor upon you? Jesus has already rejected the worldview and the interpretation of the religious leaders who taught these types of things. Most people, not only then, but even today, have accepted the economic, cultural, and social norms of behaviors and attitudes of the world. Even today, the church is infected with that mindset. It's preached and taught in pulpits today. However, we should not... Scripture calls us in Colossians chapter 3. You'll see it here on the monitor. Again, this is a great passage of Scripture. We looked at it several weeks ago as well. He says, if you have then been raised with Christ, if you are now a, in a, a, a seeker of the kingdom of God, if you're a child of God, seek the things that are all above. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then he goes, not only seek those things that are above, but set your mind on the things that are above, not our things that are on the earth. Our lives, listen to this as we come to a close. Our lives are to be remarkably different from the world. Our response to circumstances are to reflect our trust in God who is wise, who is good, and who is sovereign. This verse calls us to pursue uh, the things that are heavenly where moth and rust do not decay and where the thief cannot break in to steal. It also instructs us not only to pursue those things that are above where he says set our minds, but also instructs us to focus our hearts, our desires, and our appetites on the things that are of God and not on attaining the things that the world prioritizes. Now this can be difficult. Not only are we hardwired to be selfish, but we are also trained from our earliest years to covet what we do not have. And let me share with this. I noticed this not too long ago with my own grandsons, my own children, my own self. Some of you are old enough do you remember the Sears magazines? You probably weren't there when they first came out, but that opened up a world to farmers and to America. They're able to see in full color or maybe black and white in those days, but then full color, all the things that were, uh, that were open to buy in, in worlds that, and in stores that they could not buy in their own towns and countries and villages. And in that you would sit there and pursue it. I remember uh, when, when Christmas time came when I was young, we would get you know, everything from uh, Sears to um, uh, JCPenney and all those. And we would take those articles and we would, especially when Christmas come, we would just look at those articles. Look at all the sports stuff. Look at all the toys. I noticed uh, just several weeks ago, Land and little Lando was looking at a, 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 a little Christmas magazine. And what is he saying and doing as he's reading those? Well, I, I want that. I want this. Well, I would like to have this. I want that. And that's why kids, when we're going to the store, they have no, uh, they, they, they have no uh, problems just grabbing something they want. 
And I noticed that what we're doing is that we're teaching our children from a young age when we give them those things is to desire and covet what they do not have. And many times what you and I cannot afford and which we are not going to give them. Remember the phrase, let's go window shopping? What's window shopping? But train your heart to desire that which you cannot afford. And you know what? I didn't come to this until I was well into my 40s where I actually realized that. Coveting is our main problem, by the way. It's the one that you and I break each and every moment. It's coveting that leads us to adulterous, to adulterous affairs. It's, the, it's what leads us to steal. It's what leads us to hate. It leads us to murder. We just saw that in James. We court because we do not have. So what ways are we training our children to covet? What ways do we covet what our neighbor has, what our friends have, what our employers have, what the world has? We want their life. We want their money. We want their job. We want their cars. We want their homes. All the while, bringing in the spirit of the age who tells us you can have it all. And you can have it now. Jesus changes things. I myself fell victim to the same theme. Don and I were just joking. We're not really joking. I, I saw this article for boxes for men. You know, these, these things where you, can, you pay a monthly fee and, and every month you get to choose a different box. And they send you this gift. And boy, I looked at it and they had these hatchets and they had these watches and they had all these cool things. And I said, you know, I'm going to do this. You know, for 40 bucks, I can get a, a box a month and then I can change the box if I don't like what's in it. I'm two months in into it and every time I get the box, I open it up. And disappointment comes. Just what I needed was skincare. That's just right next to hair products. Just what I need, Right. And then this week, this month, oh, it was a great knife. I get the knife and it's like this big. You know, we get, we grab, we open, we attain what the world tells us to desire and we open it up and what happens? Disappointed. We're still hungry. We're still weeping. We still are being attacked. Now or later, what do you want? Now or later? The Bible actually tells us that we have both. That God can put his favor on us now and that we will be fully satisfied and enjoy later. Would you join with me in committing this morning in shattering the world's paradigms and what it means to be, to be, to be fortunate and to seek to obtain the favor of the Lord? This comes as we submit our hearts to him and pursue his kingdom for his glory and for our good. There we had bowed and every head closed. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up. I'd like for you just to challenge you. Where are you when it comes to the now and the later? Are you yourself struggling with the things of the world? Are you struggling with desiring the things and the spirit of the age? Let me share you. It's better to be blessed than to be woed, if that's a word and a phrase. I pray today that you're getting the blessings of God. And so he tells us to live that out, trusting fully in his promises. Would you join with us as we close out in singing, My One Comfort. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. 
we encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.